0: Well, hello. Hello, you all right? I'm fine. How good. are you, double jabbed now? Yeah, double jabbed. Had a bit of a, a bit of an issue with the whole jab thing in that I went to bed last night at nine o'clock and slept solidly for 10 hours with a bit of a chill fever thing. But I woke
1: up this morning fresh as a daisy. So good to work. <laughs> that is very good news. Have you had your double? I am double jabbed. Yes, I was done a while ago excellent in early as a key worker at that point brilliant I'm 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 just waiting for the 5g to kick in absolutely <laughs> it's not as good as you think it's going to be I'm going to warn you now <laughs> like the gay agenda I never got my copy of that either People oh, no. Things and it never shows up
0: still waiting for that
1: I will Anyway, so in the last episode, we started... Hang on, I haven't
0: done the intro yet.
1: Oh, go on then.
0: (laughs) Hi, everyone.
1: You're listening to When the Rainbow
0: Appears, a podcast with me, Lisa Jane Lewis, and the lovely Rachel Humphries. Hello. Hello. Sorry, I know we already said hello, but I have to do my intro. This is what I'm here for. This is my bit.
1: Yeah, that's fine. You do your bit. I, I just want to get straight to, to, to the to the important bit. You know, forget because we're those.
0: talking because we're talking all about sex today. Rachel's just so keen to get to get in with it. But I will tell <laughs> I Can't her, let's help just, it if Ancient Rome want
1: to do Ancient Rome.
0: <laughs> just tell everyone we have just had a mega conversation about what we can and can't say in this podcast, and we're still not quite sure. So, um, if you're listening with sensitive ears, or if there are little ones around, um, I can't guarantee what we
1: will or won't talk about later on. So last week we decided, well we started with accepting the idea that we all have to interpret scripture. Um, There's really a clear and obvious meaning to a text that's written 3,000 years and 3,000 miles away in a dialect nobody speaks anymore to an audience we never get to meet. We recognize that while we all inherit a reading of scripture that we're taught is authoritative, those readings differ significantly from generation to generation, from denomination to denomination and from culture to culture. We began to understand that the way the Bible's written invites us into this dialogue, this wrestling match where we have to discern what God's saying to us in our generation and in our culture. And Jesus knew this was going to happen. I mean, he said to the disciples in John 16, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth and tell you what is yet to come. So Jesus had already set us up for there's going to be more truth that we need to know that isn't going to fit into the things he'd already said. But I wonder if you spotted the trap here. Right, the question, no, no,
0: in all seriousness, the question is, and it is a genuine question, how do we know when we're reading and reading different people's interpretations of scripture over history, and I don't just mean like now between a couple of commentaries, how do we know that these are like genuine, inspired commentaries and translations and understandings of the bible and not people either trying to just write their own agenda into their translation
1: or people that are like spaced out on whatever absolutely like <laughs> yeah because you know we've just got to look at previous generations to see people reading from scripture that slavery was right that women <laughs> are less than men that the world was going to end in 1999 oh and that donald trump is going to win the 2020 election we see you bethel um What's but this, the Bible, uh, there's a lot of people in America who th- really thought it was, but Jesus really? Jesus knew this was coming. Jesus is not an idiot. Thank goodness. like. Uh, me in Matthew 7, "Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them." And so, like, Jesus was pretty clear that, you know, there's going to be people who are going to come along, they're going to pretend they're speaking the word of God, or they might genuinely believe they're speaking the word of God, but they're going to be like wolves, not like sheep. But how do you know? By their fruit, you recognize them. So how do you know? Look for the fruit. If the result of a teaching is people who are happy, healthy, living right lives, building the community of God, there's a decent chance it's halfway right. If on the other hand, the result is fear, secrecy, poor mental and physical health and isolation from the kingdom of God, there's a decent chance something's not right and it may even be spiritually abusive. So this is a test I find really helpful when thinking about choices about sexuality and gender identity, for example. For churches with a traditional understanding of sexuality and gender identity, do your theological choices, and let's be clear, it's a choice, do they result in happy, healthy, socially included gay, bi and trans people? And for affirming churches, do your theological choices lead to gay, bi, and trans people who can negotiate healthy and safe relationships that are honouring to God and the people involved? And note, the answer is not necessarily yes to either. There's genuine questions there, and we can, you know, we can get so. I think it's a bit of a danger, particularly actually, for people who think they're really inclusive and think that yeah, we're right on this. And actually, some of the ways we present things and do things can still be spiritually abusive, and we have to watch out for that just because you know you feel like you're on the side of the righteous doesn't mean you're always right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's a little bit that conversation we were having in um, episode 1 about conversion therapy. You know, yeah. there are some there are some real genuine people who have you know it's none of it's coming from a bad place. It's coming from a place of love and and their understanding of what the bible says and they they just want person to be as they see it, healed. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's not coming from a
1: malicious place, but it's not. But you have to look at the fruit. Right, exactly. exactly. The fruit of what you're doing is damaged people who think they'd be better off dead than gay. Yeah. That's not working. Right, exactly. No matter how good your intentions are. Absolutely. Intention at that point does not matter. Your impact right. is people would rather be dead than gay, and that's not all right. Right, absolutely also replace trans, sorry, I was just using that for brevity, but any of the identities could equally be included in that sense. Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, last week, so we looked at some life-giving ways of reading the clobber text from the Hebrew Bible, and we realised there's not very much evidence any of them are talking about what we'd recognise to be a healthy same-sex relationship in the modern era, just a completely different culture and a completely different understanding of sexuality. But what about the New Testament? It's only 2,000 years ago. Based in a culture we know well, the Romano-Greek one, surely we should be able to be a little bit clear what they were talking about. So first we'll look at all the things that Jesus taught on the subject of homosexuality.
0: Well, I don't think that's going to take long, is it?
1: No, I think I've just finished. Okay, great. He did have something to say on gender variation, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, but on the gay stuff, he literally never mentions it. So we have to look to the letters, specifically those attributed to St. Paul, for any clues at all. And there's a couple of verses that are included in the Clobber verses. One of them is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. I'm reading from the New International Version, 2011. And it says, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor a bunch of other people will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so I'm using the 2011 NIV translation, which has this footnote. on um, verse nine, the words men who have sex with men translate two Greek words that refer to the active and passive partners in homosexual acts. That's not correct at all. The King James Version doesn't mention the word homosexual at all. It translates those two words as effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind, which although a little obtuse to modern interpretation, it doesn't mean gay in any way. In fact, the first time the word homosexual was used in the Bible was, guess, 1946. Which makes biblical homophobia exactly the same age as the ruby slippers and movies in technicolor
0: and my dad
1: and your dad oh that's (laughs) lovely your dad is the same age as hom. i don't don't tell him that might make him sad
0: no i will know he'd 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 like that stat that's this kind of thing
1: (laughs) (laughs) anyway what happened was this this is the way the word homosexual got into the bible in any sort of phrasing the people had been using the King James Version six sixteen eleven. decided it was really time to have a modern version of the Bible. So there's a team in America producing the revised standard version of the Bible in the 1930s and 40s. Naturally, it's a team of entirely old white men, because who else would you have translating the Bible? And that's a sure recipe for accuracy. But they came across these two words and they weren't sure how to translate them because they're kind of obscure. They looked at an English translation of a German translation of the text, because at the same time, there's a German team working on a modern German translation of the Bible. It's the 1940s. So communication between American academics and German academics is not (laughs) at its best. They're more unlikely to be dropping bombs on each other at that point. So they couldn't actually talk to the German translation team and say, what on earth have you done with these verses? There was a bloke in England who had got a copy of the German attempts at translation of that passage and translated it into English for his own purposes. So they looked at his translation of the German interpretation. The Germans actually, we now know, had translated those words with the German word for a boy molester, which fits exactly with how people had interpreted it through history. The English translator had looked at boy molester and translated that as homosexual. I don't know who that English translator was, but the weight of history that has followed that casual decision that I presume it was a he made is actually quite scary and quite shocking. The RSV translators in America didn't know enough German to argue. They couldn't talk to the team because it's the middle of the Second World War. So they used that as authoritative and put homosexual into the 1946 edition of the New Testament and it was published. 12 years later, A young student called David in America, who'd been brought up reading the King James Version, had always read it as a child molester because that's how people had interpreted it. He went to Bible college. They said, you need to read the shiny new Bible. So he read the shiny new Bible and read that translation for the first time, was absolutely horrified that anybody could think that that word would be translated as homosexual and wrote a letter to the chair of the translation committee at the age of 20 explaining exactly why he'd got it wrong using his Greek sources and suggesting that they look at it again. To be fair, the chair of the committee agreed with him and looked at it again and said, no, actually we've got that wrong with the knowledge we now have, we should change it. And the next edition of the RSV corrected the error to a more actual, accurate sexual perverts, which is, you know, Still not as clear as I'd like it, because if somebody wanted to read Gay into that, they could, but it's it's much closer to the original. Unfortunately, by that time, and they couldn't change when you publish editions of the Bible you have to sign a contract to say you're not going to implement any changes for a certain amount of time because people can't handle the Bible changing all the time um, and they would signed a contract to say they, w- they wouldn't put any more changes in until 1971 so they couldn't change it till then and in that intervening time between the 60s and the 70s the NIV, the NASV and the Living Bible had all used the RSV as their reference edition for their translations and had copied the translation so from then on all the versions of the Bible had assumed that 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 the meaning of those words was homosexual when it never was, apart from one guy in England in the (laughs) Second World War who was too lazy to look up the proper meaning. But it's become baked into our understanding. The only modern translation to reject this is the message where Eugene Peterson, bless his soul, wrote Mm -hmm. those who use and abuse each other, use and abuse sex and use and abuse the earth and everything in it, which is a far more accurate translation of the intent of the passage. So when I first found this out, I really had to take a minute to absorb the impact. This is another situation where I'm sure all the people who were involved, were trying to do their best work. But the lack of diversity on the teams meant that no one questioned the received wisdom of the time and really basic error that a first year theological student could uncover. Nothing against David, I'm sure he was a very good student, but he was a first year theological student, not a professor, not a particular expert, but he could see it was wrong. And that really basic error has led to the persecution of thousands. And it's so recent. It's within one lifetime. Reverend David is still alive, though he's in his 80s now. And before that, he'd never have dreamed that that verse could apply to him as a gay man. So, yes, this is when we really have to kind of absorb the impact of this kind of crazy decision that was made and just very applying a casual prejudice without having the people in the room or without doing proper research or without thinking and talking about it I think it's important we make sure we don't do the same
0: it goes back to what we were saying in the in the last episode when you say or when you hear people say the bible clearly says mm. well no no it doesn't yeah. it really it really doesn't it genuinely doesn't and when you start to understand a bit more about this uh, world of how bible translations have occurred over history and how they're still occurring today mm. then you really need to question when someone
1: yeah. says the bible clearly says that's it because the one thing these two words are not is clear right exactly one that there's one that's a common greek word it's got a lot of meanings we don't know which one paul meant it could have had several and there's another one that probably paul made up so literally we have no you know it's like if i make up a word like spifflebunk or something and then expect you to know what it means that's a great
0: word what was that word spifflebunk what
1: does it mean i like it i don't even know yet if in I was it, Paul and writing it to somebody in a letter, I hope I would have decided by then. But you'd have to listen to me use it a number of ways in a number of different contexts before you begin to work out really what I mean by it. And yeah. Paul very unhelpfully doesn't do that. He uses it twice and then nobody ever uses it again except for quoting Paul. So we really have to do some guesswork and guesswork is where your prejudices come out. Absolutely. And if you, I need a bad person who has something to do with X and Y, it must be that person because I don't like them. Or because I've been told they're a bad person. Anyway, let's have a look at what it actually what we do know about what they might mean. But at the end, it's going translation is always interpretation. If you've ever done any translation work, you know this. It's always interpretation. Things in one language don't just map onto things in another language. Even if you think about like bread. Bread in English, you think of generally speaking, a sort of squarish cuboid loaf that you cut into slices for toast. Bread in France baguette big stick bread, yeah bread in egypt flatbread flat
0: thing yeah
1: bread in subway disgusting stuff that I yeah no agree. that's true i agree with that <laughs> But <laughs> if i'm being honest just bread in america is just very very yeah, but I even mean, a simple word like that brings totally different assumptions depending what culture you're coming from and sometimes you just need to explain things anyway to talk about these we need to talk about sexuality in the ancient roman empire in which corinth is a major city So Roman men, again, marriages are usually arranged, Roman men were usually married, they would have had children, it's their duty to have intercourse with their wife to ensure succession of their property and their business. But the difference to us now is that as long as they had intercourse with their wife and produced appropriate children, it was completely socially acceptable for them to have intercourse with female and male slaves, with female or male prostitutes, or with boys who weren't citizens. And that wasn't a bad thing. That was just well, a kind of acceptable leisure activity, if you like, and kind of expected, particularly if you were a person of any status or any money. The only off-limits people were male Roman citizens or another man's wife or daughters because they were considered his property. Slaves, prostitutes, non-citizens don't count. They're available, they're free game. Anybody can have them anytime don't mistake this for random promiscuity despite the tales of the roman emperors most of roman society and family life was very orderly and love often grew in the arranged marriages but roman society didn't have a negative view of supplementary forms of sex if you like the only thing that they did have a negative view about was a man diminishing his status by allowing himself to be penetrated that's the taboo in roman society because the most important thing for a roman man isn't orientation or desire but it's dominance it's power it's status and you establish power in Roman society by penetration and the richer you were the more that was a big deal. So because dominance is the dominant characteristic, basically anybody who's being penetrated is being humiliated, being made less, which is, of course, fine if you're a slave or a woman anyway, because you're already less. But if you were a man and you were allowing yourself to be made less by somebody else, that would have been very shameful and disgraceful, not because of the gender, but because of you being the person allowing yourself to be penetrated because dominance is the dominant characteristic that makes then many of the relationships abusive and the the, um, practice of pederasty keeping a boy to rape was normalized particularly in senior officers in the army and politicians and people of power some writers try to romanticize those relationships it's possible you know that there may have been feelings on both sides but the fact remains that sex with a minor is rape always and in those power dynamics whatever feelings may emerge is still a wrong thing to do. Even people in that society recognised that, religious Jews, particularly like Paul and Philo, found this as repulsive as we would now. There must have been, of course, because gay people are not new, gay people have existed in every society from the history of the world, so there must have been what we would recognise as committed gay relationships, but you couldn't make them public if you had say two centurions who were in a committed gay relationship as soon as that became public the one who everybody thought was being penetrated would immediately lose his status and probably lose his job and his position in society and his position in his family and everything in his life would fall apart so if you had a committed mutual respectful gay relationship of the time we'd recognize today you could never tell anybody so that's our context so the words in corinthians you've got these two words you've got the first word malakoi which means literally soft same as the english word it covers lots of things so it could be material or animal fur it could be effeminate so some translators suggest its use refers to male prostitutes who might have dressed in female clothing or something or it can mean like soft like self-indulgent the type of lazy rich individual who spends all their time at parties eating and drinking too much and abusing others sexually we can think of examples in public life these days, who have been accused mm-hmm. of such things. And either of the last two translations could make sense in the context of the passage. It's really not clear exactly what Paul means, but none of those are specifically gay. The second word is the one that Paul made up, which is arsenicoite. And it, it's two, made up of two words meaning male and bed. And it's important that it's the word male, not the word man, because a man obviously implies a grown up. Male could include boys. And the assumption would have been that um, if you're talking about two men in Roman Greek culture, it's probably a man and a boy. And wherever it's found, it's only found in lists such as this one and in 1 Timothy's, the same one, and people quoting Paul in similar lists. It's always examples of usually sexual and always financial exploitation. So we have to do some guessing. Neither of these words are clear translation choices. One of them means one of the sorts of soft, we don't quite know which. The other one is something involving sexual and/or finan- financial exploitation of boys. The German translator of Charbel affects reflects how the first few centuries of Christians interpreted the verse. With pederasty literally everywhere in the Roman world, it was a key issue for Christ followers. And of course, there were plenty of Greek words for participants in same-sex loving. It was a common thing in Greece and Rome. I won't suggest that you search Greek and Rome pots that show portrayals of same-sex loving in ancient Greek and Rome, but there are very many of them. And there are, of course, lots of words to describe participants in all sorts of roles. Paul chooses not to use any of them, but make up his own word. So he's obviously trying to convey something different than an average couple having gay sex. So the choice of the translators to use the word homosexual or any of its synonyms, men who sleep with men or whatever, is actually purely just one of prejudice. You're choosing to impose that upon a text when that's not what it originally meant, highly likely. I don't know what my reaction is to all of that.
0: I mean, it kind of makes me angry to start with. Like my first reaction before I've kind of checked myself and, you know, absorbed it in a intelligent way is just to be angry that this one decision made yeah. 75 years ago has impacted you know 75 years of lgbtq plus people in churches around the world yeah. not just here and continues to impact people to this very day because this one thing has been taken as the word of god quite literally taken as the word of god even though it wasn't the word of god mm. it was the word of a bible translator and you know we are living with that legacy i mean what a legacy to yeah. to to leave a legacy of exclusion a legacy of mistreatment of abuse that is, that is not an easy one. So my first, you know, my first emotional reaction is just to be really angry about that. But then, you know, I do add my rather limited intelligence, but some intelligence onto it. And then I can, I can understand why it was done because like anything, it's been written into a culture. And, you know, the 1940s in the UK is not a place where, you know,
1: homosexuality, no, any kind of otherness is accepted. This is where Alan Turing comes back from having saved the world by cracking right. the Enigma code, and then gets arrested for being gay and chemically exactly. So no, exactly saved world.
0: Exactly. I think it's kind of interesting that the Germans didn't go down that route because if you know anything about like Germany in the sort of mid-war period, sort of late twenties and nineteen thirties into the nineteen mm. forties, you know Germany is a very kind of open, sexually liberal country mm. at that point. Absolutely. So, with, it,
1: the, with the biggest library of material on the history of transgender stuff absolutely absolutely which you know the the famous picture of the nazis burning books that's the transgender library going up yes absolutely as a result of which we now have basically very very little historical material on the history of just transgender people because it all got burned by the nazis
0: no exactly and the the club scene in in berlin Mm. at that time is is just epic i would love to have been living in berlin at that time (laughs) it it would have been amazing um you know if if people don't know it then you know the the kind of stagey version of it is is the musical cabaret which is my favorite musical of course it is my favorite um but it it just tells the story of what was going on in berlin right into the time of the war and then you know along comes the third reich and homosexuals are then you know absolutely penalised and continued to be penalised. And continued, yes, they got freed even from after the then put back in prison. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that that didn't stop. But it's just interesting to me that the German translators
1: didn't didn't translate. No, because back. they were they were in a culture that was at ease with gay people or wasn't exactly. freaked out by them. So they read it and went, well it can't be that obviously. Can't be that. Exactly. And but that's they the were, that is the difference that when you they were in a culture gay that... people and you have out gay people in your life then you look at that and you go well that can't possibly mean that right because that would be exactly. ridiculous exactly so it has to be
0: something else so what is it let's look deeper let's yeah let, let's really try to understand it so you know kudos to the germans really
1: absolutely anyway should we go to rome yeah let's do that i'd love to go to rome i'd love to go anywhere other than my house right now (laughs) honestly isolation anyway
0: i'd love to go to rome
1: This will be a whistle-stop tour of a fascinating and complicated subject. If you want to know more, I recommend Dr. Jim Brownson, who has both extensive YouTube material and an excellent book on the subject. This is for many people the deciding passage. We can dismiss Leviticus really easily as a bunch of rules we don't follow anymore because we don't follow the rest. Sodom isn't about gay relationships any more than it's about mobile phones and Corinthians is an obvious translation error. But Romans, this book's the heart of the evangelical faith. It's also the only mention of women. So where you land on this may well depend on how you read Romans 1. So let's have a read. I'm going to read the whole thing because the flow of logic through this is important. Starting at verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Get this, they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know god's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death they not only continue to do these very things but also approve of those who practice them well done on your
0: dramatic reading
1: apologies looks like good. melodrama there but I think it's actually appropriate. i think this is on brand so if we attempt a clear and simple reading of the bible with no attempt at context that seems really clear that gays are evil yes absolutely. but then when you actually read it again it doesn't because the logic of the passage is simple people were idolatrous they worshiped creation and denied god that's step one step two because of that and it says very clearly because of that idolatry god gave them over to evil designs desires. sorry except that i mean i don't know about you i don't know anyone one single person who first rejected god embraced nature worship and then became gay
0: yeah, that didn't happen to me that way no
1: the logic is wrong so let's do a quick quiz. Okay, okay. You, you can be you can be my partner in this one. Have okay, you my- have you refused to thank God for creation? No. Except possibly mosquitoes and wasps. To be fair, yeah. wasps are all right. Wasps, wasps, eat nasty, nasty bugs. But basically, I haven't refused to thank God for creation. Have you worshipped your cat or dog or something else in nature? No. Just, Just checking.
0: Check. No, I mean my friend's cat is really
1: cute, but no. I don't want worsh- you used to worship God no have you deliberately decided because it's quite clear it's deliberate to believe lies about God definitely not do you hate God not today do you invent new ways of doing evil uh, some people might say yes I do but <laughs> no I don't think I do <laughs> kind of depends how you define that I think so if your answers are mostly no Romans 1 is not talking about you brilliant oh it's- yay! <laughs> If your answers are mostly yes, but only afterwards, after you got really hurt by church, then this is definitely not talking about you. If your answers are mostly yes, because you're a secret Sibylle worshipper, then this may possibly be, be you. Because let's get real. Look, the stories we hear are people who grow up in church, knowing they're gay, loving God, who still love God. People who read the Bible through a million times and have gone on mission trips and been to Bible college, who've been baptized in water and the Holy Spirit and still maintain they've been gay their entire lives. The idolatry thing just isn't there. You know, and the people I know are people who've been worship leaders and house group leaders, who've been missionaries, who have given their entire lives to God and are still gay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The logic is different. The idolatry isn't there. The rebellion isn't there. Don't get me wrong. I also know people who, after the church has treated them so horribly that they don't feel they can ever go back there, they may then leave the church, become pagans and hate anything to do with God because they were hurt and treated so badly. But that's the wrong order. That's not what Romans 1 is talking about.
0: No. And that's completely understandable as well. Believe me, exactly. I have
1: absolute respect and love for those people because I, I I, feel where they're coming from. Exactly. i've come close to myself <laughs> exactly so that can't be what paul's talking about the order is wrong we may have to resort to context again right now can we go to pompeii <laughs> there is a letter to the church in pompeii but because pompeii's preserved so well it gives us a really idea a really clear idea of how this concept of penetration equals power looks like in practice and it was not what we today consider family friendly. The wing of Naples Museum that houses the Pompeii artifacts was bricked up and closed to the public until the year 2000. And the reason for that is because a ridiculous percentage of the exhibits are 18 certificate. You have, now how can we describe these pictures, Lise? I don't know, I mean how, what What words are we allowed to say? Well
0: i to say penis because we've said that that's, we, bi- that's we...
1: biological, that's fine. Yeah. Are we allowed
0: that's to cool. use the colloquial? I think we can go with a little colloquial. Dick, can we go with dick? I think <laughs> we can. I think we have to. I think this is the original, like, like this is the original dick pic right here. Yeah.
1: is isn't it? Like, there's just... We have to describe to the poor listeners what we're being forced to look at here. I mean firstly it's utterly brilliant so it's it's of no
0: hardship to look at any of these images at all I want to pick up what you said there there was no letter to Pompeii I wish that Paul had written a letter to Pompeii because I would love to read that but more importantly I'd have loved to have read Pompeii's reply to Paul's letter
1: <laughs> anyway yes. Yeah, so I'm seeing a pavement with a lovely picture of a male member embossed upon the paving stones yes um there's a lovely wall plaque here and um, the size of this particular individual's apparatus that, is I mean greater than his height I think we could agree I think that guy has a slight medical issue to be honest yeah I think he needs a doctor we have some frescoes of some people who seem to be enjoying themselves quite a lot and this is not you know this wasn't in a brothel or something this was in the chip shop or you know no, the no, no, the people, house. you know this is there's one, isn't there? There's one in Pompeii where it was basically what they believed to be the dining room.
0: And it's just a massive picture of two people shagging. Yes. In
1: mosaic stone. I mean, it's, it's wonderful art. It's I love it. it. With time and care over hours. And exactly. the hilarious one is that there's this, it's a good luck charm and it's on a little key ring, you know, that you, you might hang around your neck or, you know, keep on your key ring or whatever. And it's basically a giant flying penis with a tail. It's quite hilarious. I can't quite I can't really, these things. I can't really see that one very well.
0: Is that what it is? Yeah. a flying penis key ring. Yeah. I want a flying penis key ring, don't you? I mean, who wouldn't want that?
1: Uh, i'll leave you in your bisexual delight on that one i think i may opt out but yeah basically the, the the museum of pompeii is filled with thousands of these things and you've got amulets you've got statues you've got paintings you've got sex toys carved I like on pavements carved onto walls in your average everyday locations <laughs> i like the giant cock in a temple that's very right. like a cock and balls like the kind of comedy ones that people draw today Yes, in a temple. That's yeah, really like wrong. it was spray painted by a fourteen-year-old. It totally looks like that. They just now spray, spray painted paints, that it, Yeah. You know? <laughs> now, it may be that Pompeii was a little special even among Roman towns for its emphasis yeah. on the phallus, but honestly, even if you look in the Roman Museum at St Albans, which is designed for kids. This is to take me to take my year fours on a school trip. You can't quite escape them. You've still got the little good luck charms sneaking in everywhere, even in the St. Orphe's Children's Museum. I,
0: I remember when I was at school and we were studying the Bayeux Tapestry. There's like a giant cock on the Bayeux Tapestry and you can't hide it. It's No, it's lovingly sewn into the fabric <laughs> you can imagine the nuns enjoying that one <laughs> but i think i bought a postcard of that when i went there to see that it would in not surprise me at all. i
1: think that's the postcard i
0: bought was the one yeah we really so liked. while
1: while in medieval times you have one nun sneaking a quick one in and getting away with it in roman times literally it's ubiquitous it's the standard decoration for everything um whether it's exerting dominance over others or invoking the power of the penis as protection which is a bizarre concept to us it's the <laughs> symbol of power you can see how Paul's injunction to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ would have been revolutionary in that culture where every relationship is basically defined by penis power. What about Rome itself? So when we, t- when we learn our Roman history in primary school, we tend to focus on central heating and soldiers uniforms rather than the juicy bits because, you know, people <laughs> are seven. But you think about the Roman emperor Caligula who reigned from 39 to 43 AD. So this is just after Jesus' resurrection. Anybody following Jesus in that era is gonna be really familiar with the Caligula story. He is famous for the following things. He turned the royal palace into a brothel. He wore out his male sexual partners. He humiliated the wives of his senators by raping them at parties. Charming guy. He scorned Jewish practices and monotheism, so he was particularly hated by Jewish people for obvious reasons. He set up a statue of himself as God. Classy. There were rumours of incest, many acts of barbaric cruelty and madness, for example, declaring his horse a senator. And there was a phrase used about him that he received the due penalty in his body. Have we seen that somewhere before? When his guards assassinated him because he was basically so horrible to everybody. (laughs) So this... is a really really famous person really well known in in Jewish culture particularly fits in the right time period and there's several points at which you could think ah oh, Roman's one could really be talking about caligula there's a lot of points there even words that match and phrases that are the same on the other hand you could look at the gods So the most important among many gods and goddesses in Rome at this time is Sibylle, or also known as the Magna Mater or the Great Mother. She was supposedly the goddess of Troy and guarded Aeneas on his journey to found the city of Rome and is still its protector. She's celebrated in a range of annual festivals, the biggest of which is in March. It's become a huge deal in Rome, especially since Livia, the wife of Emperor Augustus, was the high priestess and they celebrate with plays, chariot races in the Circus Maximus, then 10 days of music, dancing, and, orgies, oh pleasant, where the priestesses, and the priestesses are the main people in this particular cult, they use dildos to penetrate the eunuch priests, or the priests are known as the galley, and the galley then use dildos to penetrate each other. Could this possibly be something Paul might be talking about? The highlight of the festival, and um, really uh, sensitive ears might wish to skip the next 20 seconds, according to the Roman white Lucian is the day of blood when any man who wants to join the galley has to castrate himself, then run around the town carrying what he's cut off. At some point, he throws his part into the doorway of a house, and that house has to provide him with women's clothes and jewellery, which he will wear from now on. Just sounds like a normal day in London, doesn't it? Lucian probably exaggerates, to be fair. Romans really loved calm and order, and there was probably a lot more bull's blood than human. And the Romans eventually banned the galley ceremony, thinking it was barbaric. But at the time of Paul, it was still part of the rhythm of the year. And any Jewish person who's living in Rome would have been familiar with the rumours, even if they weren't exactly the reality. But the thing is, you see, the rumour is exactly what Paul wants. What he's doing in Romans 1 is he's setting up a straw man of a spitting image style evil Gentile so he can pop the bubble of the self-righteous Jewish believers in chapter 2 and say they're no better. But what he needs is a good caricature for chapter one. So he describes the situation of extreme idol worship, indulging lustful desires. He describes women in unnatural sexual acts against nature. And the Greek there means non-procreative sex. So it could be any kind of sex that is not going to make a baby, basically. It doesn't say women with women. So it could be these priestesses using dildos on their eunuch priests. Then he describes men doing the same to males, probably boys, and says they've already received the penalty in their bodies. Well, one could certainly say the galley had received the penalty in their bodies for their choices to be part of this idol worship. So it's another thing that could really easily fit. And what we don't know, because Paul doesn't use um, proper nouns in here, he doesn't use a name. We don't know if he had a specific target. Jim Brownson thinks he's talking about Caligula. Jonathan Tallon thinks he's talking about the civilly cult, or he could have meant the practices of priests and prostitutes in Roman temples in general, because there was an awful lot of it around. But what's really interesting is that, you know, these people aren't historians, they're theologians, but even with their limited knowledge, they've managed to find several different examples that pretty well match what Paul's talking about pretty precisely. So it seems likely that in the context of ancient Rome temple worship, it wasn't hard at all to find sexual practices that were non-procreative for women, and abusive of boys for men. And this is certainly what the early Christians such as Clement of Alexandria and Augustine thought Paul was talking about. So in conclusion, Paul's painting a deliberately exaggerated picture of a bad Gentile. His, bas- his basic line is Gentiles are icky. <laughs> so his rhetorical flourish in chapter two of saying you're no better is gonna work. So he describes a group of people for whom against nature sexual activity is a result of idolatry not the other way around. So it could be specific to Rome with Sibylle or it could be generalized, but it's highly unlikely, remember what we said about the Corinthians situation that Paul was talking about an equal relationship because it didn't exist publicly in Roman society. It would have existed in private but it could never be made public. So what's the chances Paul's talking about that? His readers wouldn't have known what he was talking about. And it's totally in the context of what Paul calls idolatry. You may have noticed, incidentally, that five out of the six clobber passages refer to gay sex in the context of idolatry. Sodom, possibly not, but some com- commentators say there's a link in that situation. So if you have some spare time, do count the admonitions against straight sex in the context of idolatry. There are, I believe, several hundred, and we don't assume any of them make sex inherently simple. Context, consent, and care might actually make an awful lot of difference. Yes,
0: absolutely. <laughs> It's just so. I mean, firstly, all that stuff about the Romans and, you know, I don't know why they don't teach that at at Sunday school. They really should. You know, if we're going to teach our kids Bible study on a Sunday morning, then they should absolutely be teaching them about the Sibley cult. I I don't see why they wouldn't. Could you imagine, could you imagine? It's so hard you, to imagine a society
1: where that's normal, isn't
0: can it? Can you imagine a kid coming out of Sunday school one, you know, one Sunday in some leafy kind of corner of, of you know, green Britain saying, <laughs> and mum saying, What did you learn at Sunday school
1: today? Oh, we learned about the Sibylle cult dildoing each other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but can you imagine living in Rome where that's what every seven year old would have known about because it's what no, was absolutely all around them? You know, that's just a level of normal that we find very, very difficult to imagine. So when we read Romans 1, we have to imagine something to fit it because it's so far outside our experience. Yeah, that's no. It, for the Romans. The people Paul was writing to would go, well, yeah, could be that, could be that, could be that. I don't know, what do you think he meant?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's tenuous at best, isn't it? The link yeah. between really only the Romans passage is the only one that has any sort of, linked to mean homosexuality in the way that it's understood and even that is very very tenuous
1: yeah well you know it's it's not it's obviously talking about men having some sort of sex with other males and that yeah but it's not talking about i think that's the passage that is clear it is talking about males having sex but, it's, yeah. you know, in the whole context of kind of drunken orgies in an idolatrous temple is completely different from, you know, two rather middle class, diffident blokes wanted to get married in a nice Church of England church. You know what I mean? We're a million worlds away from that. Right, exactly. But it, it's no more talking about that as
0: being wrong as it is about any other of the straight sex acts that it's talking about being.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You you could change the gender. Exactly like the Sodom story. You could change the gender of people in the passage and it would make no difference to the morality of the situation. Right. Absolutely. So unless you're coming with a prejudice that it's inherently immoral, which some people do. Yes, absolutely. Which which a lot of you're bringing that with
0: you. It's not there. And I think a lot of people come at this passage having never read the bible before i'm thinking specifically this might not this might not be a good reference but i'm just thinking about um you know courtney apt
1: one yeah. of the queens
0: from rupaul's drag race and you know i'm a big fan and so uh, she and her uh, business partner and friend vanity have a wonderful podcast called brenda call me it's so good i highly recommend it <laughs> but they were talking about it on an episode that i was listening to the other day and they just had all this preconceived idea about what Christians believe about the Bible. And it's all the stuff that we've... So this is, this is going beyond Christian culture. This is what non-Christians think that Christians
1: yeah. believe without question. Because Christians have told them that's what they believe. Exactly,
0: exactly. <laughs> it, but, but not so much. It's just what's out there in... It's not like one particular Christian has told Courtney, Shane, whatever, yeah. like this thing. This is just what he has picked up Mm-hmm. from being around and it saddens me so much that that's just what people assume that the Bible says yeah. people that don't read the Bible because aren't Christians assume that this is what the Bible says but it's not what the Bible says
1: yeah well, this is, as I said at the beginning, this is really the deciding passage for, you know, if you're listening to this as a gay Christian trying to work out if it's okay for you to have a relationship or not, how you read this bit is where it's basically what's going to decide it for you. And people read it both ways. Let's be honest. There are some yeah. people who are just listening to everything that I'm saying again. Do you know what? You're just trying too hard. You're trying mm-hmm. to make it into something it isn't because it suits your lifestyle. And if that's how you feel about it, then that's fine that's a perfectly acceptable biblical interpretation as long as the fruit's good for you yeah that's something to seriously think about is this is the fruit of that making you healthier making you happier making you close to god and if it is great but if you're looking at it and thinking the fruit of this in my life is terrible i feel really bad i can't cope anymore there is lots and lots of space to read it differently and still respect it in fact to respect it more because let's face it gay Christians have put more work into Romans 1 than anybody else we are not tucking out the bible we are trying really really hard to understand it much more than the people who just read it and go oh it's that and spend precisely 10 seconds thinking about it
0: yeah absolutely I think that's where um you know that's one of the things that really riles me is when I've been told you probably have been told I've been told myself by numerous people on numerous occasions oh so you're you you're ignoring the bible on that then or you're you're dismissing the bible or you don't you don't believe the bible anymore mm-hmm. like uh how much study have you done on this yeah. and how much study have i done on this let's just have
1: a little survey going on here right now and remembering that everybody up to the 1940s basically assumed it meant child abuse
0: child mercies yeah
1: and i yeah. have no problem with the bible being very very strongly against child abuse i'm uh, oh. very happy with that
0: I, I, just for the record I'm very happy with that too. Anyway, that's that for this week I think. Hit us up on Twitter. We're there as at rainbowpoduk or if you'd rather drop us an email you can use when the rainbow appears at gmail.com that's when the rainbow appears at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. See you next episode. See you next time.